Hello and welcome to Metaphors of EdTech, a podcast by me, Martin Weller. In this podcast, I talk about metaphors of educational technology. There's an accompanying book published by Athabasca University Press, which you can check out. It's free to download or you can buy the print copy. And in each episode notes, I'll put links to interesting articles or things that are relevant. So check those out. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to a sub-series of Metaphors of EdTech, uh, where we revisit my previous book, 25 Years of EdTech, and I'm now updating it to 30 Years of EdTech. Previously, uh, when the book originally came out in 2018, a colleague, Clint Lalonde, uh, decided to set up a community project turn it into an audio book with a different person reading each chapter. You can see that over 25years.opened.ca. And Laura Pasquini set up a podcast called Between the Chapters with guests talking about that chapter each week. So I recommend visiting that. What I plan to do here is to republish the audiobook version with a preface from me, thinking about kind of how things have changed and whether I was still happy with that chapter and what's moved on since then, plus the extra five years um, that takes us up to now. Hello, welcome to another episode of 30 Years of EdTech, and we're now at 2008, and we're talking about e-portfolios. The audiobook chapter, which comes up after this, is read by Julian Pryor, and the Between the Chapters podcast with Rob Pasquini is uh, Orna Farrell and David Wicks. So, e-portfolios. Um, it's a good discussion to have over on the, the podcast. Uh, Laura makes the point that, you know, Sometimes I think with things like e-portfolios, we create a kind of slightly artificial way of doing things that people might actually want to do, might be useful, kind of force people to share stuff in a weird way, as she says. I think that's that's true a bit of, uh, of e-portfolios. Um, and in both the chapter and Orna says in the in the podcast, I will say to her, let's just be a blog. And <laughs> I think there's some truth in that. And maybe in blogs, in some ways, it gets back to that forcing people to do things in a strange way you know blogs are perhaps a more natural way of, of keeping a journal but I, but I take some of the point that you have some extra functionality in an e-portfolio and, and David makes the point about you know that their e-portfolios are essentially blogs now and they've really um this really been driven by the domain of one's own approach from uh, Reclaim Hosting and, and Jim Groom and I think that becomes a very powerful idea then it's like this idea that you own this space yourself it's not a a university tool that you're using and then probably once you leave you never go back to again but rather it's about creating your own space your own portfolio your own domain that you are sharing content with and identity and all those things um i'm, I'm a bit critical of or perhaps very critical of e-portfolios in in the chapter um but i think it's, it's worth pointing out i think when they're done well uh, you know they really can be very effective um and are in the Show, post, show notes. I'll provide a link to a special issue around uh, the Ireland ePortfolio project. And there, like a number of different universities adopted ePortfolios and they started sharing ideas around different assessment, different ways of using it. And I think then it's really powerful. When one of the things about ePortfolios is maybe they're not very interesting in of themselves, but by adopting them, it makes people rethink assessment. How are we going to do this assessment in a different way? And that's quite powerful then. And I think it's interesting now we're kind of going through a lot of the angst around artificial intelligence and what that means for assessment. And oh, oh my God, we can't do essays anymore. We can't do exams anymore. Quick, everybody rush back to face-to-face exams. It's the only safe thing to do. Um, a more portfolio-based assessment, 
would get around, I think, a lot of those issues, a lot of the, those anxieties that people have. You know, it's about different tasks that people build up over time. There's perhaps a, a lot more of the personality of the student in the, in the, the portfolio, and there's bits of evidence here from across. So, you know, I'm not saying they're AI proof, but I, I think they would be more prone to kind of um, to sort of showcasing the student's personality, the individual, rather than just kind of a standard assessments. And so from that point of view, maybe they are a bit more robust against some of the challenges of artificial intelligence. I will just say, it was, it, I think I mentioned the chapter, it's, it's interesting how, you know, ePortfolios came along and sort of, you know, hung around and people, some people used them, they had their converts, some people loved them and other people experimented with them and then didn't carry on using them. But then a few years ago, we had, uh, and it's a later chapter in the book, we had blockchain come along and we went, this is great. You can share small bits of tasks that people have done. This is going to revolutionize assessment. <laughs> no, we, we've got ePortfolios already. Why Why is putting it on the blockchain in some way different to what we could have done with ePortfolios? But I'll, I'll moan about that more perhaps in the blockchain chapter. Um, so I think I ended the last podcast about second life so maybe i was a bit harsh on second life and so maybe i was a bit harsh in portfolios I'm, maybe i'm getting softer in my old age uh, but i think some of the criticisms i make in the chapter are valid and i think they what they point to is not that e-portfolios themselves are fundamentally you know problematic but rather i think some of the ways we implemented and some of the assumptions we put with them um stop them becoming in many ways the kind of norm for assessment that they could have done really and, and maybe we would, we would be in a better place with regards to things like um artificial intelligence and, and perhaps during the pandemic as well you know we, we weren't at risk of these kind of high stakes exams if we'd moved to a much more portfolio based assessment so had we really adopted portfolios e-portfolios kind of sector-wide, you know, during the 2000s and 2010s, then we probably would be in a lot better position now. So um, if I was overly harsh, it's only for their own benefit, as a, as a good parent would say. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the audiobook chapter, which is coming up now. Welcome to 25 Years of Ed Tech, the serialized audio version of the book, 25 Years of Ed Tech, written by Martin Weller and published by Athabasca University Press. This community-produced audio version of the book is narrated by a global cast of educators with a new chapter released each week. In addition to the book, there is also an accompanying podcast called Between the Chapters, which contains analysis and discussion of each chapter of the book. For more information on the audio version of the book and the accompanying podcast, or to subscribe, visit 25years.opened.ca. Chapter 15, 2008. ePortfolios. Read by Julian Pryor. ePortfolios provide a digital means of gathering together a range of outputs, assessments, and resources for a student. Lorenzo and Ittleson, 2005, define them as, quote, a digitised collection of artefacts, including demonstrations, resources and accomplishments that represent an individual, group, community, organisation or institution, end quote, page one. Beetham, 2005, summarised them as a collection of digital resources that provide evidence of an individual's progress and achievements, 
are drawn from both formal and informal learning activities that are personally managed and owned by the learner that can be used for review, reflection and personal development planning and that can be selectively accessed by other interested parties, for example, teachers, peers, assessors, awarding bodies, prospective employers. Page three. Writing as early as 2002, Batson described ePortfolios as, quote, too good to be true, end quote, paragraph seven. In this, they are akin to learning objects backed by clear logic and strong argument. They have not quite undergone the same fate as learning objects and are heavily utilised in many institutions, but they have not led to the fundamental change in assessment practice that was once foretold. The argument for ePortfolios is a compelling one. They provide a place to store all the evidence a learner gathers to exhibit learning, both formal and informal, in order to support lifelong learning and career development. It is an idea that has significant impact for education. Instead of recognising education at the level of qualification, such as a degree in a particular subject, it allows a more granular recognition of specific skills linked to evidence. This means a student can demonstrate competences such as teamwork, communication and problem solving to potential employers in a more effective manner. Much of the potential of ePortfolios is aligned with some of the constructivist language around student-centred learning. For example, O'Keefe and Donnelly, 2013, claim that, quote, students can take possession of their learning and view the assessment as a positive experience in which they are assessed for learning rather than the reverse, end quote, page two. The use of ePortfolios varies, with Chatham Carpenter, Sewell and Rashig, 2010, having identified four main uses, reflective learning, employee marketing, program assessment, and showcasing professional standards. In a survey of 43 institutions using ePortfolios, they found that most were using them for more than one of these functions. Their use, however, was not always appreciated by students. Singh and Ritzhaupt, 2006, found that many students did not perceive an ePortfolio as a valuable tool and identified a number of themes, which included a lack of support on how to use the system, a lack of understanding and buy-in from faculty members, high cost, an overly complex user interface, and a resistance to the expectation that all students should implement an ePortfolio as a graduation requirement. Students may sometimes resist new methods because they come with an overhead for adoption, but this resistance diminishes as support improves and the new methods become more commonplace. Some of the criticisms highlighted here are an indication of the problems that arise when implementing a new approach and technology in an area as sensitive as assessment. One successful implementation of ePortfolios is the ePortfolio Ireland project a collaboration between institutions of higher education in Ireland that aims to establish a framework to encourage academic staff to incorporate ePortfolios into their courses. The evaluations examine the perception of ePortfolios from the perspective of students, faculty and employers. ePortfolio Ireland, 2019. The results showed that nearly half of the students who took the survey were currently using the tool and of those, approximately half did so for their own use, and half because they were directed to do so as part of their study. However, 
using ePortfolios for preparing for future employment and career development was not strongly reported, and 65% of respondents indicated that it took a lot of time to complete an ePortfolio and that this was a barrier to their use. From a faculty perspective, many reported positive outcomes, but very few staff used ePortfolios themselves. The evaluations reported that 80% of employers indicated that they include ePortfolios as part of their recruitment. However, given that evidence in competencies to employers is seen as a key benefit of ePortfolios, their usage may not be affecting practice. Korn, 2014, reported a similar finding, noting that, quote, 83% of respondents to a recent Association of American Colleges and Universities survey said an ePortfolio would be very or fairly useful in ensuring that job applicants have requisite knowledge and skills. End quote. Paragraph 6. However, actual practice by recruiters does not reflect this. Korn continued, quote, Hiring managers are sceptical that the web portfolios will convey anything more than a resume and interview. End quote. Paragraph 9. This makes sense. While employers will say that the extra information in an e-portfolio is useful, in practice, they're having to work through many pieces of evidence submitted by many applicants in addition to their resumes and having to conduct interviews is probably too time-consuming. It also indicates that entrenched practices such as CVs and interviews have their own momentum and edtech is not implemented in a social vacuum. The success of any technology lies in an alteration to accompanying practice more than the technology itself. Although ePortfolios have achieved more success than learning objects, they have not become the standard form of assessment as proposed, although in some areas their uptake has gained significance. Some of their issues are akin to those that beleaguered learning objects. While not damning them, the following issues still hamper their adoption. Overcomplication. As was mentioned by many of the students in the studies quoted above, they found ePortfolios time-consuming. ePortfolios need to link into institutional systems and meet different requirements. This has led to the development of an IMS standard that can export and move between institutions. In addition, ePortfolios require methods of locking down items so they can be assessed, a means of providing different views for different audiences, and so on. The result is software that can be overly complex for users. Institutional, not user-focused. A related point is that the result is a solution that is sold or selected by institutions. An institution has a very different set of requirements than an individual. However, for ePortfolios to be successful as a lifelong learning tool, then it is the individuals that need to adopt them and be motivated to use them. Focus on the tool, not the skills. The complex, institutionally focused tool that has been developed requires a good deal of training for students to use it, as was reported by many of the students in the studies referenced above. This support is crucial. The danger is that the ePortfolio becomes the tool used inside education only, focusing on a specific university's requirements with little focus on the more general skills that are the main benefits of ePortfolios. Sharing content, gathering and annotating resources, becoming part of a network, reflecting on work, commenting on others' achievements, and so on. Lack of ownership. 
While the intention of ePortfolios is for students to take greater ownership of their assessment and learning, there is no clear evidence that students continue to use ePortfolios after graduation. This may be a result of the ePortfolio's institutional focus. Jim Groom, 2008B, and others have proposed that blogs provide a better option for ePortfolios than most bespoke software, claiming that they provide students, quote, a space that they can share, interact in, take with them, and build upon as they move onwards and upwards with their lives, end quote. Paragraph 4. ePortfolios enable tagging and comments, offer an easy means of embedding content, can be exported to other systems, and can be linked into institutional systems. More significantly, though, they are based on the individual, and as we saw in Chapter 10 on blogging, they form an ideal basis for developing an ongoing digital identity. While not definite, I would contend that it is likely that more students would persist with a blog they initiated during their formal study than with an e-portfolio. For instance, how many of your colleagues do you know who maintain an e-portfolio compared with those who maintain a blog? Although e-portfolio tools remain pertinent for many subjects, particularly vocational ones, for many students, owning their own domains and blogs remains a better route to establishing a lifelong digital identity. If we were to consider ePortfolios as an instantiation of a more general approach of rethinking assessment and recognition, and then reimagine courses and pedagogy that would utilise this, then we would have an interesting case study. The technology is only part of the story in terms of their adoption. Users have well-articulated reasons for their usage, but in order for these to be realised, the accompanying culture in higher education and employment also needs to adapt. Such cultural change is a slow process. And as with metadata, the return on investment for such change needs to be worthwhile. ePortfolios are currently engaged with the task of establishing this case. Thank you for listening to 25 Years of EdTech, the serialized audiobook version of Martin Weller's 25 Years of EdTech, published by Athabasca University Press and narrated by a global cast of volunteers. Intro music for the podcast is Abstract Corporate by Grip Sound and released under a Creative Commons attribution license. To subscribe to the weekly audio series and the accompanying podcast between the chapters, visit 25years.opened.ca. listening to metaphors of edtech remember to subscribe if this is your bag uh, and also check the episode notes for any useful links and fun things there Music.